0: This is Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, The Retail Doctor.
1: And here's where we wanna be a little bit more nuanced. If I know you to be somebody who gets defensive easily, I'm gonna leave out the personal pronoun, you. And I'm just going to focus on the circumstances. When the mall opened and our gates went up, we had two people on the floor rather than three on Tuesday. And the person's probably going like, oh yeah, the missing person was me. (laughs)
0: Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with your host, Bob Fibbs, the champion for a more human connection in retail for over 30 years as a retail doctor. Bob is the authority on brick and mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest luxury brands to independent retailers of all sizes.
2: Today, my guest is Dr. Janelle Anderson. She's the founder of Working Conversations. She's a voracious researcher, author, and podcaster, and her work is at the intersection of technology, communication, and leadership. Welcome, Janelle.
1: Thank you very much, Bob. It's great to be here.
2: Great to be here. So, uh, I'm going to start with a little personal question for you. One of the things in your bio was how, you, when you're not working or researching, you like to re-engineer dishes from your favorite restaurants. So, how did you get involved in that? And um how do you know if you get it right or not?
1: All right. Well, it is a trial and error process. So getting it right usually takes a few attempts just to answer the last part of the question first. Uh but how it all started was I was I was young. I was in my early 20s and a friend of mine from college was back visiting. Uh I I went to college in Boston and she had taken a job in DC and she was back visiting. We went to a restaurant and uh she she wanted to get an appetizer and I said, "Sure, yeah, pick something." So she picked bruschetta and it came heaped with diced Roma tomatoes. Now, I was that kid who sat at the dinner table and was forced to eat the slice of tomato homegrown out of my parents' garden and hated it. I hated tomatoes of any sort. And so I stared down these tomatoes and I thought, how am I going to eat this? And I took a bite and it was one of the most delicious things. I had ever eaten. And so I called the server back over and I said, could I see the menu again? And I looked at the menu and I looked at what it said, what kind of tomatoes it was. It said it was olive oil and balsamic vinegar and Asiago cheese melted over the top. And I, this is in the mid 90s, early to mid 90s. I wrote it all down on a piece of paper (laughs) <laughs> because there was no cell phone to take a picture of the recipe. But I wrote it down on a piece of paper. And then I experimented at home until I got it to taste like the restaurant. And that is one of my signature dishes. In fact, it even won me a trip to Las Vegas to compete in a recipe contest at the MGM Grand Hotel.
2: What? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Holy gosh. Well, you better give that to me uh, afterwards, because I think that's only fair. And I I never know even how to say that damn thing. I have a friend of mine, she's like, it's bruschetta. I was like, Oh, I got schooled.
1: I got schooled at the um and yeah. the, the judges were uh top chefs at Vegas restaurants. Yeah. So I got schooled by Chef Serrano on how to say it correctly. And
2: how is the right way to say it? Br- bruschetta. Yeah. I still say bruschetta. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that's fascinating because that leads me, You see, I would have approached it differently. I would have said, like, uh, the server, can I have the chef? Can he come over and tell, you know, do you have a recipe I can have? I wouldn't have even thought of that. But you're a researcher by nature. So, of course, it's just a matter of like, oh, well, if this is the effect, then, then what's causing it, right? It's kind of that same idea. Which brings me to our first uh, hardball question of the day, which is, um, we have a labor shortage right now. And um, I think it's different than what we've had before. Um, Would you agree with that? Something seems different this time.
1: Well, I'm going to give that a yes and. So the labor shortage, if you think back to prior to the pandemic, people were already having a hard time filling open positions, say in, you know, 2018, 2019. So it's been sneaking up on us. And then the pandemic came and with the pandemic, we had the great resignation and reshuffle and we've also got long COVID in the mix. I mean, there's a number of things that have made the workforce smaller than it used to be. And part of what I do is I watch these trends because I want to help organizations not be so surprised by them. So let's not have them sneak up on us. Let's be a little more proactive about watching what's happening in the marketplace so that we can anticipate it and change accordingly before it takes us completely off
2: guard. That is so funny because I think, uh, oh, I even have them today. I think most of us have these rose-tinted glasses, right? That uh, <laughs> yeah. Back in 2018 and 2019, everything was perfect there was everything was great back before the pandemic we just have to go back there and it's like maybe not right so um what do you think the future of work looks like i mean certainly you know we work with retailers all over the world and uh there can be different things between countries but it seems like um young people all have a side hustle they all seem to have one or two they have a different expectation of work you know what i've been I think when we were first talking about being on the podcast, I said, you know, when I was starting out, you had to use your body. That was it. If you didn't have a skill, you you were either lugging something, digging something, making something, or you worked in retail. And I remember thinking like, well, this will never serve me. And obviously that was faulty thinking back then. But that's not the case now because a 17-year-old could be an Uber or a DoorDash driver. So a lot more opportunities are out there. So what is the future of work as you see it? Look like Janelle,
1: yeah, and I mean, a 17 year old certainly could be an Uber or DoorDash driver. They could also be writing software and selling it, you know, as a part of their side hustle to a large company. They could be editing um, photos on Fiverr or any of those sites or putting together videos for people like you and I. There's so many different ways. So, and I guess that leads me into entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is one of the things that has taken people out of the traditional job market in the way that you were just describing because there are so many different ways to piece together uh, a living, you know, earning a living.
2: And, you know, I was—I uh, heard uh, Damon James with uh, uh, Shark Tank, and he said, you know what the number one most watched TV show is with families together around a screen? I was like, I have no idea. He goes, Shark Tank has been for the last 5, 10 years, which to me is fascinating because um, that's a very different mindset for young minds right? That if I just get this one idea, I can get funding, I, I can figure all this out. And, you know, in a retail environment, um, there's a certain group that are pushing us more to be like online, you know, self-service and less connection. And there's another one that's saying, which is my side, no, we need more connection because we crave human connection. And there's an article today in the paper about how Meta is uh, uh, employees are so upset because they've laid off almost 30% of their crew. But a lot of the executives are saying go into the office and yet they're living in London or they're living somewhere else and like, do as I say, not as I do. So is that going to continue to be a a dynamic that, you know, if you make it high enough, uh, the rules are very different. And what does that do to a culture?
1: It's, it's a real push pull right now between leaders and employees about, you know, being back in the office. And as you say, a lot of the senior leadership isn't necessarily doing what they're asking their employees to do and senior leaders i think are and i think this is true for retail leaders as well the concept of management by walking around is different when you have let's say just on the retail floor you got fewer staff so are you over managing if you're managing by walking around um and with when you have fewer staff how do we use technology to fill that gap in a way that we can keep the customer relationship really strong so as, as retail managers think about what's most important and how can they use technology to handle some of the tasks that maybe were very onerous for them so that the time that they do spend with their employees and the time that they spend on the floor interacting with uh, customers is the highest value time it can be.
2: Well, and that's I think great.
1: that... that really requires a mindset shift about technology. Because right now with AI and everything that's happening in the technology space, people are worried that employees aren't going to be needed or those types of things. And I think this is where we really need to zero in on what are the most valuable things that we do when we're face-to-face with a customer or for the retail manager when we're face-to-face with our employee. Where do I get the most value out of that? And then And then let's look creatively at anything that's not that, how can we use automation or AI to handle?
2: Well, you know, and I think that's the challenge that um, the great retailers, the great teams that I see and meet, um, it's a we together. It's not a, you know, you. And yet it's easier for me to manage you, Janelle. Janelle, uh, I didn't see that display put back after you sold that item. And we get caught up in tasks. And, you know, in your work and in your programs, you talk about leadership and how important team building and all of these things are. So, you know, what are some transformative trainings that you've given to help people see that? Because one of the things I, I've noticed is that, yes, retailers held on to managers, but who we typically lost were the assistant managers and shift leads. People don't want to be the one that says, uh, you're going to mentor this person or you're going to train them. And this big gap leaves a lot of problems, certainly in, in the future. So what could you add to the mix on that? Well,
1: there's a, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, you mentioned that focus on task. And I think the other side of task is relational. And one of the things that working from home or working uh, with fewer staff on the floor in the retail organization is that there's not as much time spent on that relational piece, keeping the relationship strong. If, because we're so focused on, you know, if there's fewer people on the floor, then there's more task work that, and more task, if I'm the manager, more task things I might need to say. And if I'm not also balancing that with the relational side, I'm not shoring up the relationship enough to be able to have a difficult conversation with you. If your performance is slipping or if you're not punctual or whatever it might be, that's getting in the way. So one of the things I really like to zero in on is how strong is the relationship that you have with each of your employees? Can it weather a difficult conversation? I think most people would
2: say it can't, which is why they both have those conversations. Is that fair to say?
1: It's totally fair to say, because when the relationship can't support it, it's so much easier to avoid the conversation. And I know managers who've got, uh, you know, a file folder full of performance reviews that say the person's doing fine. they are a three out of five, but they're really not a three out of five. They're a one or a two, but they just haven't had the, they haven't taken the time to build the relationship, to be strong enough to have a straight conversation with them.
2: You know that's an interesting point I heard Brene Brown talked about. She was using an example of like when you're in kids, and the teacher, you know they do something good and they she puts marbles in the in the jar. and if they do something bad, she takes a marble out. But when it gets filled, she has a party. And her idea was that's how we build trust. And that kind of dovetails into what you're saying that if there's not enough marbles in that trust jar, this uh, performance, you're late, you're you know something has to something has to be corrected. If that becomes a deal killer, it means there's nothing in that marble. So I think that's a lot of what's wrong with how we manage people, right? I mean, in your book, you talked about your book head-on how to approach difficult conversations directly. You give tips for all kinds of people. So let's say it's a you know it's a parent or somebody. What's an example of something that what kind of a difficult conversation and how could you say it? You know, I know you're cheating on me. I mean, that's. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you got an F in in science. You're grounded. I mean, those are the things you hear in movies, but in reality, how should they play out?
1: Well, you know, if I you reverse I, I reverse engineer I reverse engineer uh, recipes from restaurants, but I've also reverse engineered the difficult conversation. So let me reverse engineer it for you quickly, and then we'll kind of go through it more uh, specifically. But so the first thing you have to think about is what do I want my end result to be? So it's just like making that making that. Uh, dish of bruschetta for me. What do I want it to taste like at the end? What should it look like? What should it taste like? How do I want it to end? And when we start with the resultant that we want to get in mind, and then we back that up and we say, okay, well, I want to get some form of agreement or understanding. So if I'm your manager in a retail uh, location and you've been late, let's say you've, we've got a punctuality issue. You're, otherwise you're you're friendly, you're approachable, you're great with the customers, you know how to upsell and cross sell, and yet you've been late a few times and that's just not working for me. So I, I, I want to think about having a mutual understanding at the end of this conversation, that you understand the impact that your lateness is having on the floor and we have come up with a way to deal with it. Okay. So, but before I can get to that point, I need to think about, um, not, not just what's in it for me and what's in it for you, but who else might be involved our customers other coworkers maybe an assistant manager or a lead or you know who else is involved and then i also have to think about how do i listen to your side of the story if I'm your manager, how am I going to listen to your side? Because it's not just about my side. You've got something going on. Something's making you late. Maybe you have a sick cat or a sick dog or a spouse or a kid or an aging parent you're caring for, or a sick car. You just don't have the transportation figured out. There could be so many different things. And so I need to be ready to listen to your side of the situation. But before we do that, I need to open the conversation and in a very specific way. If I open the conversation in a way that makes you feel threatened the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to get defensive. And when the human brain feels threatened in any way, our completely natural response is to be defensive. And that is the worst way to start a conversation with somebody because from a neurobiology standpoint, what happens when somebody gets defensive is uh, the blood flow rushes to their limbs, arms and legs. Because if you think about fight, flight, or freeze, which is what our ancestors would need to do if they were being threatened in the wild. You know, if the saber tooth tiger is, is chasing you, thinking you're going to be lunch, you need to climb a tree, you need to run fast, or you need to freeze in place so that it doesn't think you're food. And our human brain still works that way, even at work. It's crazy. But our, our work life and our life in general has evolved far faster than our brain has. So you could just get a sidelong glance from your manager when you're coming in late and, and completely go into fight, flight, or freeze.
2: So how am I going to start this conversation? Because I think, oh, God, I got to talk to Janelle. She's been late three times this week. I hate these kind of conversations. Hey, Janelle, I got to talk to you.
1: Yep. Okay. So the, the first thing you have to do before that is you have to get yourself in the mindset of, oh, yeah, I need to take a couple deep breaths. I need to get my sympathetic nervous system, fight, flight, freeze under control so that I don't come off across in a way that is gonna feel threatening to the other person. So I just need to like, you know, take a couple of deep breaths, just really try to get grounded. And then again, think to how do I want this conversation to end? Because now we've reverse engineered it all the way to the beginning. So step one is you're just gonna take a couple of deep breaths and get really grounded in how you want it to end. Step two is you're gonna open that conversation with something that I I have like a little recipe inside the recipe where I call this the grand and and the fact and model. We're going to start with a fact. Bob, you've been working here for six months. And you know what you're going to do if you're my employee? You're going to be like, yep, I have. And we have some agreement. So we started with some common ground, total agreement. When the other person is in agreement with you, by nature, their brain does not feel threatened. And so they are not going to be defensive. So we have to start off with some common ground. I call it facts, but they really could be commonly held beliefs or opinions. So we'll put those facts in air quotes. We start off with a fact. Bob, you've been working here for six months. And you go, you're go, you going like, yeah. And in those six months, you've proved to really learn the product line and get how, who our customers are. And I mean, here's where, don't blow smoke. If these things aren't true, <laughs> let's not say them. But if there are some other facts that are relevant to the situation, let's let's bring those to the table. Again, we're not trying to, Butter up the person. We're just going to say some, you know, you've been a valuable employee. You've been a valuable asset to our organization. Okay, and you're nodding. And you're like, okay, yeah, thank you. Maybe, and then you're going to say, one of the things that's really important here is that when the mall opens, we need to be properly staffed. We need to have people on the floor ready to sell. And employee Bob is probably doing exactly what you're doing, nodding along a little bit and going like, yeah, that that's true. And then we're going to say, and three times in the last two weeks, that wasn't the case. And, and, and here's where we want to be a little bit more nuanced. If I know you to be somebody who gets defensive easily, I'm going to leave out the personal pronoun you, and I'm just going to focus on the circumstances. When the mall opened and our gates went up, we had two people on the floor rather than three on Tuesday and the person's probably going like oh yeah the missing person was me <laughs> now if the person if you have a stronger relationship or the person doesn't tend to get defensive really quickly you could easily say you were late three times in the last two weeks and the person's going to be like
2: feeling oh. right that's
1: yeah yeah
2: i think that's so, a really great the, tip to take the you out of it because but.
1: because what we really want to focus on is the organizational impact is the impact for the store and the customer So then the next piece is, and, and we keep connecting these things with, and I'll explain why and is so important in just a second, but we keep connecting these facts with the word and, and we're leading up to the organizational impact. And when our store is not fully staffed, when doors open, we then... And then you put in the organizational impact. We um, can't serve our customers as well, or our uh, brand's reputation for excellent customer service is on the line, or we simply can't sell as much and our
2: numbers suffer. Everybody else is having to do twice the work and they resent it, and you. Yeah,
1: your colleagues are having to pull the weight. So whatever that organizational impact is, but really keep it about the impact and not about the person that you're having the conversation with, because that is much better Uh, it's a much better way to keep them from getting defensive. And it really goes to what we want to talk about anyway, which is the organizational impact. How is this affecting our store? How is this affecting our team culture? How is this affecting whatever it is that's the, you know, that's the impact of their behavior?
2: I love that. I love that. Well, uh, Janelle, we're going to take a little break and we're going to be right back after this word from SalesRx online retail sales training program. Hey, it's Bob again. I'm not only your host, but also the founder of the SalesRx online retail sales training program. How many sales that should have been yours walked out your front doors today? You know, with shoppers being more discerning about where and when they shop, you need to convert more lookers to buyers. And SalesRx is the perfect solution to make training memorable. It's bite-sized. It can fit easily into your schedules. Don't tell me you don't have time to train. If you can give them time to take a break, you have time for them to train. Now the training builds from some of the quickest ways to engage shoppers to the most advanced. Everything is planned so you can implement your sales training program with a click of a button. And there's a reason we're on four continents training thousands because sales are exascalable. Everybody learns the same new skills that will grow your sales. In fact, 83% of users report a double digit increase in their sales within six months. Wouldn't you like that to be your story Visit SalesRx to learn more and set up a call with me to see how we can help. That's S-A-L-E-S-R-X dot com. Now back to the broadcast. And we're back with Janelle Anderson. Thanks so much. We're talking about reverse engineering processes. We're talking about taking you out of uh, bad situations you might have a conversation with. And, um, you know, in uh, thinking about it, um, how did your school studies and your job with a computer team help you understand how people talk and work together with technology cuz they're really linked together with you aren't they they that's a big deal with you
1: yeah so you've already heard me talk a little bit about neuroscience i'm really curious about how the brain works and how that impacts our relationships and one of the things like let's say it's difficult conversations or or something about leadership or emerging technology when i link what's happening in the brain with what I'm, let's say if it's a training session, I'm talking about uh, using a new technique, whether it's a difficult conversation or again, any kind of circumstance, because I work with a lot of people who are uh, tech, tech savvy, and I'll, I do a lot of fair about a fair bit of work in the tech industry, when I can remind people or sometimes educate them for the very first time about what's happening in the brain, then they go oh, yeah, like, let's just go back to defensiveness. Oh, I certainly don't want to make a person defensive when I have a conversation with them that's meant to coach them to be a better assistant manager or a better, uh, you know, director in a corporation. That's certainly not what I want to do. And then you say, okay, now if we understand what's going on in the other person's brain, it makes a
2: difference in how we approach it. But nobody teaches us these things, Janelle. That's why you're around.
1: Well, it's all in the book.
2: Oh, what uh, book is it's that? It's all in
1: the book. Head on How to Approach Difficult Conversations Directly, available wherever
2: you buy books. And why did you write a book like that?
1: Well, it was one of the first training programs that I developed. And every time, almost every single time I trained it, everybody said, this is great. Where can I get more? This is great. Where can I get more? I want my boss to know this. I want my uh, you know, my whole staff to know this. And so it was really, it was peer pressure from my customers.
2: I love that. <laughs> I love that. When you have a podcast called Working Conversations where you talk about a lot of different things. Um, how has that changed since you first began though? When what year did you start that?
1: I started that uh just over 2 years ago. In fact, we just a uh, few episodes ago. I think we're on episode 107 or something like that now, but uh so we yeah, celebrated our 100th episode a couple a wow. couple of months ago.
2: So how have things changed since you started it in the middle of the pandemic to now?
1: Oh, well, let's see. I I think my po- the podcast has really evolved based on what my listeners want to hear about. And so it was initially things that you know that I thought might be helpful for people, but then as people responded to and said, "Hey, we loved this one," or "Tell us more about this." And in fact, uh, at the beginning of this year, I one of my podcasts was about the uh, my my five top predictions for the future of work in the coming year, and so and then I did a deep dive on each one of those five predictions uh, coming up after that. And I, in fact, if I may, Please. I think there's one of those predictions that I think is particularly important in the retail space. And that is, and I, I've alluded to it a couple of times, but that is the, um, the tight labor market that we're in. And my prediction is that it's going to continue.
2: Yeah. And you know, the challenge is there's not a lot of levers you can pull to fix it. You know, we've, when my McDonald's up here in rural New York is still putting on the, fr- uh, Reader board fifteen dollars an hour to start. Uh, we don't have that conversation about minimum wages at seven seventy five federally. It doesn't matter, um, and we've tried throwing money at it, and that's not necessarily it either. And I think the challenge for an awful lot of retailers and and any business is, I think uh, employees, associates, whatever you want to call them, are looking for something more than. In my generation, I just turned 65. And frankly, the idea was, go to work, shut up, do what you're told, and act like you're happy about it. And then you get to retire with a gold watch or something. And that was kind of our mantra, what we were kind of done. And unfortunately, that's probably the way I I managed when I was first starting out, like do it or, you know, you're fired. Well, with a tight labor market, you can't do that. And we're finding that that turnover cost is so huge, that it's not even a matter of these were people that knew products and knew our procedures, just the basics of having another human being uh, only here for a couple of months. We hear a lot of retailers say it's like a swinging door here. Just as soon as I get them trained, they're gone. So why do people stay and why do people leave, do you think, um, particularly uh, in, in face-to-face businesses, right? I, on a call center, I think it's different than in a retail store where it's a lot of interpersonal skills. But what do you have to say?
1: Well, one of the things that I think is a factor here is that work-life balance since the pandemic has come into sharper focus. And it's something that the younger generation, especially as we look towards Gen Z, who are starting to come into the work in, into the workforce. In fact, right now, we've got about 30, 13% of the workforce is Gen Z. And over the course of the rest of this decade, as those, the rest of the Gen Zers are all in middle school, like my two youngest children. (laughs) Um, But over the course of the rest of this decade, they're all going to graduate from high school. And some of them are going to go immediately into labor force. Some of them are going to get technical degrees and, you know, from junior colleges and such. And some of them are going to go to universities, but still in, in 2030, we're expecting Gen Z to be 30% of the labor force when most of them are out of, out of college or out of high school, certainly. And many of them out of college they have totally different demands. They grew up during a pandemic. They, and the older ones um, were, you know, 10 years old when the Great Recession hit in 2008. They saw their parents lose jobs. They saw the you know their parents tighten the belt straps. And so they have this whole different mindset about money. They don't want to put as many things on credit cards as maybe the uh, millennials who came before them. So they're, they're much more financially savvy, but they also think very differently about their values and how that lines up with their workplace. And if it doesn't line up, they're going to ghost you. I mean, probably the many of the people who are listening to your podcast have been ghosted at interviews or ghosted during, uh, you know, for shifts yeah. Yeah. because this group just, they're, they're not going to go for it.
2: No, yeah, that's very true. And I think, um, you know, you talk a lot about talking and leading and working together people in a group. I think that's the one thing that we continue to hear over and over messaging. It's a, we, it's not an I, it's a we culture and, um, it's harder to manage. Let's just be honest. It's just harder to manage. You've got to be, you know, I think so many people confuse this with, um, I'm going to be your buddy and we're going to go out to on Saturday night we're going to be, and we're going to be buddies. We're going to drink. We're having a great time. Fine. And then Monday, when you go back to being the manager, it's really hard because now you've you've switched into this Avengers character like now I'm this and I think that's a fine line I don't think that ever works to manage but there's elements of that that you have to bring to every day right because otherwise it does feel a bit like you're a cog in this big machine and you're just waiting around for someone to walk in the door and that's mind-numbing I think that's the biggest challenge for most retailers is how do you keep it fresh and keep the minds going right
1: Yeah. And I think that brings us back to that task versus relational piece that we were talking about earlier. And I, I, I don't advise people being that overly chummy. I mean, let's be friendly at work and I want to know your cat and dog's name and your kid's names and your best friend's name. And I want to be able to, you know, if I'm your manager to be able to touch base with you on those kinds of things and have a, a meaningful relationship, but not necessarily be your, you know, your drinking buddy, or expect to be invited to your wedding, or any of those kinds of things. Right,
2: I think that just opens the door for for bad things myself, and uh, that brings us to the end of our time together. Uh, you know, I ask all of our guests uh, tell me something good about retail. Janelle.
1: Oh, something good about retail. Well, I love shopping, and I love shopping with my fourteen year old daughter, and. I love, the reason I love shopping with her is, well, I mean, she loves shopping with me because she expects me to pay for everything. <laughs> if she goes to the mall with her friends, it's different. She, you know, she, she pulls her own money out of her wallet or her, you know, and, and whatever. But if she's shopping with mom, then it's, uh, it, it's a whole different, but what I love about it is I learned so much about her that wouldn't necessarily come up in casual conversations. I learn about her style preferences. I learn about her jewelry preferences or a a sense that she likes. Uh, Because if we go into, let's say Bath and Body Works and I mean, or or a candle store, those are two of her favorites. And we will smell so many samples that I get a headache. But it's just, it's so much fun just to see her light up when she finds one she likes. And again, I just, I learned so much about her being in the mall together. So that's what, that's something good about retail for me.
2: I think that's amazing. I never have heard that before, but what a great part of retail that we seldom think about is how when friends shop, they're actually learning more about each other they're not uh it's not a task they're doing as much as it's another form of communication by learning their profile i love that well thank you so much and uh again what's the name of your book one more time the name
1: the name of the book is head on how to approach difficult conversations directly
2: excellent you'll be able to find links to that all in the show notes below thanks so much for joining us today dr anderson
0: thanks for having me on bob You've been listening to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob FIBS, the Retail Doctor. As a listener, you can receive free information and guides when you visit retaildoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. Thanks for being with us. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. To virtually bring Bob to all of your crew and associates, check out www.salesrx.com.